Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to your word to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak to us, and we pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see what you want us to see. I pray that we would, again, be gripped by the good news of the gospel. I pray that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted. As we encounter such a practical book, I pray that we would not waste our time in it. I pray that we would look at our own lives and that your spirit would enable us to do that this morning in order to apply these, these principles, these truths, your word, which is the power unto salvation. So we pray that you would save. We pray that you would save us from our sins, save us from ourselves this morning. And I pray that we would be the better because we sat together under your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, our series through James, we will finish it up probably... Um, next week, and if not next week, the, the, um, the week after. So either July 28th or August 4th, we will finish our, our time in the book of James. Um, I've, I've been gripped by so many things as, uh, as we've read through and studied through the book of James, and it's almost like every single week with his imagery, with, with his illustrations, uh, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm like, like I'm being hit by a Mack truck or something, you know, and just stopped right in my tracks, and uh, every week of study has at times been painful as, as I've had to reflect on, on ways that I'm failing personally and, and where I need to repent. I pray that, that the same has been true for you, that, that you've been confronted with your sin and that has led you as it's led me to run to the cross and to cling and to, to ask the Holy Spirit to continue empowering greater obedience and conformity to Christ um, this week especially is challenging. What, what I'm going to do is we, we had verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4 read. I'm actually going to cover all the way through uh, chapter 5 verse 6. So we're going to go all the way through um, his warning to the rich there in 5, 1 through 6. It's, it's going to be brief. Don't worry. Um, when I get to it, it'll, it'll be kind of toward the end of the sermon. And, you know, when I say that, you know, that passage could merit a sermon of its own, that doesn't mean I'm going to preach a second sermon in theory. I don't know. We'll see when we get there. Um, but what I plan to do, what I plan to do, there, there is, there's, there's so much I do want to say about verse, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 that I'm not going to say this morning. Um, but I have written something that I'm going to send out to you tomorrow just, just as kind of a question that, that typically comes up whenever we encounter a passage like this. Like, you know, is it just inherently sinful to be rich? You know, because James has condemned, you know, those who are wealthy and how they're using their wealth a number of times in this book. So it, it kind of warrants that question. So I've tried to deal with that and I'll send that out to you. Um, but, you know, something, something that I was reflecting on this week is how easy it is, how easy it is for us to live like atheists while believing like Christians. And I know that might sound strange how it's easy. It's actually really easy to live like an atheist or an agnostic 
and at the same time believe like a Christian. I mean, it's, kind of, it's a scary prospect, but, but it's entirely possible. It is possible for us to believe that we are eternally united to God in Christ, that we have a relationship, communion with the creator of the universe. You know, some, this radical thing that we believe, that we can actually be intimate with the one who created everything we see and live like he doesn't even exist. We can come on Sunday mornings and confess all of the things that we confess. And in conversations with people, we can tell people where we go to church and we can tell people about our relationship with God and and yet, for the most part, live like he doesn't exist. I want to bring this up because I think James touches on it and also because it's especially dangerous because of how easy it is. That's a very comfortable way to live, especially in our context. It's a very comfortable way to live. It is easy, it is easy to say that you believe in Jesus, okay? It's also very easy to ignore him. You know, there might not be as, as many cultural incentives now as there have been in the past, but, you know, it's, it's a positive thing to be a Christian in the South, still. It's still positive, you know. I mean, overall, it's, no, one, no one's going to just, like, run you down for being a Christian in Tupelo. It's, it's a relatively positive thing. So if someone asks you, you can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. It's easy. But it's, it's also really easy to ignore him in our, in our daily lives. Think about it. You get the benefit. You get the benefit of claiming to be a Christian and all of the things that, that go into that eternal life, you know, freedom from eternal punishment and hell and, and all of those kinds of things. And at the same time, while you get that benefit, you get it without the hard work of actually growing as a Christian and actually living as a Christian. So, so you get to claim the benefits without the hard work. You, you believe the things that Christians believe, and yet you live as if God doesn't exist. Just think of a normal week. Think, think of a normal week. I'm not talking about like the highs or the lows. I'm just talking just a, you know, run-the-mill week, you know, just an average week for you. You know, what, what's your average week look like? You know, not a week where you have a major life decision to make, or, you know, your world crumbles beneath your feet or you get amazing news. Those weeks that are easy to forget. How often do you consider God's will for your daily decisions, plans, and goals during those weeks? How mindful even are you of God himself? Those average, normal, ordinary weeks. Um, here's, here's a hard one. How easy is it for you to go an entire week without communing with God at all? I'm talking no prayer, no Bible, no evangelism, no discipleship, no church, just you, your job, your home, what you're doing, your plans, you, just you. I'm afraid that we have too many weeks like that. 
See, throughout his letter, what is James concerned about? What, what is he concerned about over and over again? He's concerned about those who claim to be Christians and don't live like it. He's concerned about practical Christian living. He's wanting, us, he's wanting to show us what true saving faith looks like, what true saving faith does on a day-to-day basis. And he's also seeking to warn us about our own sinful tendencies that can lead to a practical denial of the very faith that we claim. And if you remember from last week, if you were here last week, or if you, if you caught up on, on the podcast, um, I, I you know, presented that James shows us two postures that we can take toward one another in the church and two postures that we can take before God. There's just this posture that is characterized and marked by pride that kills community in the church and kills communion with God. And then there's this other side, the second half of the passage last week that we consider, verses 6 through 12 of chapter 4, this posture of faith that is marked by humility and that builds community with others and restores communion with God. Well, this week, we, we, have, we have sort of a similar model we have one way of life that's, that's being challenged or warned against or condemned and one way of life that is, that is being exalted and commanded. So we have a couple perspectives on how we view our lives. Those ordinary average weeks. How do you view your life? Not when everything crumbles because you're running to God then or not when everything's great because you're running to God then, but those ordinary weeks, how are we just in our day-to-day lives at work, at home, supposed to view our, our lives in it? How are we supposed to view it? There, there are two perspectives that James offers here, one that he condemns and, and one that he, he commands. There's, again, this perspective of the flesh, this perspective of the flesh that he, that he shows us here in verse 13 and he comments on in verse 16. And then we have this perspective of faith, this, this exhortation that he gives us in the form of speech. This is what you need to say that's reflecting this necessary heart attitude that we need to have for our lives in the world. So what I'm going to do is I have four, if you're taking notes, I have four kind of sermon points I want you to see. We have the two perspectives. The first point and the last point are going to be these two perspectives. And in the middle, James offers us two reminders to help us transition from this selfish mindset, from this perspective of the flesh where we ignore God, where we believe in him, but we act like he doesn't exist. And then this life that is totally gripped by him and fully submitted to him. There are two reminders that he offers us right in the middle. So we have this perspective of the flesh, we have this perspective of faith, and two reminders right in the middle. So let's, let's start walking through this together. First, James shares with us a perspective of the flesh. And the perspective of the flesh is simple. My life is my own. My life is my own. I am my own. He says in verse 13, he lets us know who he's addressing. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay? He's talking about these people who, who have a business and, and they're making these plans. They've, they've had some success and so they're looking you know, toward the future. 
today, tomorrow, we're going to go into this town, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to trade, we're going to do business. That's who's addressing people who are making plans. Okay, so some of you are probably like, well, I'm not really in that camp because I never make plans, so you know, I guess I can just tune out now. Um, most of us make plans, though, right? Like we make, we make, some of us make daily plans. Uh, most of us make weekly plans. We, we make plans at least for vacation. Some of you guys are like, nah, sometimes I just feel like going on vacation and I just book something and go. Well, I envy your life. Um, most of us are not able to do that. We have to plan like way in advance. And some of you are like expert planners. Actually, there's like a few of you in here that we would, if we were planning a family trip, we would probably go to you and have you plan our family trip for us, you know, just because you're so good at planning. We, but we make plans all the time. We make vacation plans. We make five-year plans. We make 10-year plans. You know, we have retirement plans. We talk about the future all the time. And most of the time, we talk about the future with certainty. We, we, don't, we don't think twice about it. We don't think twice about, you know, the fact that, you know, actually, you know, I might not even be alive next week. It's, no, it's next week I'm going here. Next year, this is where I'm going to be. We, we make plans all the time. Um, you know, James is addressing those who have had success. That's the context. They've had success in, in their work. And so they're planning their next ventures. They're planning for what's coming next. They are masters of their own lives. The days belong to them. And whether you realize it or not, a lot of the times we act like the days belong to us. We'll make a plan for what we're going to do later in the week. On this day, this is what I'm going to do. So, you know, right here in the middle of this, it kind of forces us to ask a question because James is about to condemn this, by the way. He's about to condemn it. You know, he says, here's what I'm addressing. Those of you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and, make a tra- or, and trade and make a profit. So those of you who make plans, talking to you. Then he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So he's attacking, he's coming after people who are making plans. So it forces us to ask a question. Is it wrong to make plans? Is it, is it sinful to make plans? We, we do it all the time, but is it, is it wrong? And James is not condemning planning. As, as we've seen throughout this book, he's always going beneath the surface. It's what's beneath this particular kind of planning. What's, what's the heart attitude? that James is condemning here. He's not condemning planning. You know, obviously, there is so much wisdom in planning. And actually, in order to steward our lives well for the sake of the gospel, we have to plan. We we can't just approach each day willy-nilly. We have to plan for gospel impact in this city. We can't, we can't do it. Think about it. Like, we've had this summer, we, you know, in staff meetings and elder meetings, we've spent so much time planning for you know, discipleship in the fall through life groups and through equipping classes. We, we have all of that set. We can't just wait until the semester gets here and be like, all right, who's going to teach this Sunday? You know, I, it, that's, not, that's not stewarding our time well. It would be irresponsible for us. It would be neglectful of your spiritual growth for us to just, you know, approach it with a callous, eh, it doesn't matter. I don't want to presume upon the Lord. I don't even know if we're going to be here in the fall. So why would I make plans for the fall? You know, that, that's not what James is talking about. He is condemning a particular perspective. 
a particular sinful attitude that can sometimes creep in behind our planning. James is trying to guard us from an attitude of self-sufficiency and self-autonomy that rejects God's sovereign authority over our lives. You see, there is a way to plan that assumes the days belong to us. There's a way to plan that completely ignores God's role in our lives. And it may be innocent. You may believe that God is definitely sovereign and in control, but he's, over, he's sovereign over things like the creation of the universe or salvation. He is sovereign in bringing me to saving faith in Jesus. And he's sovereign over these big events in my life, in my life. But he doesn't really care about, you know, what I'm doing next Tuesday. James says such an attitude actually rejects God's sovereignty. And it assumes this personal autonomy. There, there are three characteristics of this fleshly perspective that I believe we can see here in James's uh, warning, you know, to, to not be someone who plans without considering God's role in your planning. Um, there are three characteristics of it. First, the perspective of the flesh idolizes personal autonomy. It's not wrong for them to plan, you know, for their business. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying it's wrong for them to plan for their business. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He is condemning their neglect of God's role in their business. They are not bringing their business decisions. They are not bringing their work life under the sovereignty of God. And I believe many of us are like that as well. That, you know, on, on Sundays, I'll submit to the Lord or in family devotions or in certain areas of my life, I will submit to the Lord. Or you just kind of view it that way. But when you think of your, your life or your, your work, you might think of, well, this is the secular part of my life. I go into the world and I, I do my job and then I go and I do the godly things somewhere else at church or in life group or in discipleship groups. But the Lord is sovereign over every single area of your life. He is sovereign over your job. He is sovereign over the, the individual tasks within your job, the relationships that you have in your job. He's sovereign over your boss. He's sovereign over your coworkers. And when we take this attitude of, I'm making plans without considering the Lord in it at all. When you, when you have this attitude of, I am my own. I am my own. I, I can do what I want. You are idolizing your free will. You, you are idolizing personal autonomy. It's, an heart, it's a hard attitude of self-sufficiency. It's, it's a hard attitude of, I don't need God. I don't need God in this area of my life. I'm good. You know, I'm making, I'm making all of these plans, you know, for myself and I don't need him. So it idolizes personal autonomy. Secondly, the perspective of the flesh presumes upon God's grace. Think about it. Every single day we have is a gift from God. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to forget that. This is a heart attitude of ingratitude. You are ungrateful. So you use God's gifts like tomorrow or next week or next year, which if you 
come to tomorrow or next week or next year. It's by God's grace and God's grace alone. It's a gift of his mercy. And when you use that gift for your own purposes without considering what does the Lord want for my work? What does the Lord want for me in my job? Or in all of your activities and all of your planning, you're using what he's giving you and completely ignoring him. See, every day is a gift, but this perspective that we're so prone to, it's incapable of being thankful to God. And I don't know, maybe some of you wake up and you just kind of say it naturally. It's not a bad thing to say. You wake up and you thank God for another day. You thank God for another day. So often we just take it for granted. Again, it's not bad to plan. It's not bad to plan. It's bad to presume upon God's grace, though. It's bad to forget that every single day you have is a gift from the Lord. But this, this fleshly perspective, it's presumptuous. I'm going to do this next week because I'm the master of my own life. I'm, I'm going to do it. You're not in control of your life in that way. When you try to assume authority that you do not have, you oppose the sovereignty of God and you live as if he does not exist. And then the third kind of characteristic of this perspective is the perspective of the flesh rebels against God's sovereignty. It's outright rebellion. It seems innocent. It seems so innocent. Why would James condemn this planning? It's a heart attitude of self-exaltation. We are in control. We dictate what we do with our lives. Consider the decisions that you make on a, on a daily basis. How many of them do you filter through prayer? How many of them do you filter through, what does God want for me to do in this situation? And then act according to that, even if it goes against what you think is best for yourself and your life. When you casually make plans when you, when you casually move into the next day without consideration of, of God's authority over your life you are seemingly innocently but actively rebelling against God's rightful place as the sovereign Lord over your life so the problem here is not that these people or that we are making plans. The problem is that we have an attitude behind our plans that says our lives are our own. That we can do whatever we want with our lives without consideration of God's sovereignty in it. So how does James respond to that? With two corrective reminders. He's trying to give us the right perspective and he uses these two reminders to help us get there. The first reminder that he offers is this. Our lives are actually unpredictable. As much as we would like to have infinite knowledge and as much as we act like we do have infinite knowledge about what's coming next and what we're going to do, our lives are actually completely unpredictable. Look what he, look what he says in verse 14. He says, you, you have said that today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's so simple and it's so clear. But the, this fallen world that we live in, 
It is no respecter of our plans. It does not care. You know, I read a tragic story, a, a tragic story about a family that, you know, was on vacation um, and this man was playing with his kids on the beach just like we did like a month ago. Like just, you know, you're right there on the shore and you're just kind of playing in the, you know, the water and it's shallow. You're not, you're not out where it's deep. You're not out where you see there could be any danger. And he's just playing with his kids and there was this wave that, that hit him. Just, it was a little rougher than some of the other waves had been and it hit him really hard and, and he, he falls and, and, and it killed him. Right there. Right there. You think they had plans for dinner? They, they probably had plans for dinner. Some of you have similar stories where you've made so many plans and because you live in a fallen, fallen world where sin is ever present, accidents, diseases, job changes, consequences of others' choices, none of these things that you can control. You can't control any of it. We think we're in control of our lives. We, we're not. So many things that are outside of your control happen to you that completely change the course of your life. James is trying to humble us if we have this cavalier perspective of our lives that we are the master of our days, that we can do whatever we want, he says, hold up. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. It could be infinitely great, infinitely sorrowful. It could be ordinary. We make plans, but we don't know for sure. We can't know. But not only is this fallen world no respecter of our plans, the Lord himself is not subject to our plans. Okay? You don't put the Lord in submission to you. He is not under your control. You can make plans all day long, but God does not submit to us and our plans. That's not how it works. Um, God is not a genie. And I know some of you probably know that, but just as a reminder, he's not a genie, okay? And, you know, if, if you remember years ago, um, years ago, years ago, years ago, all right, there we go. <laughs> uh, it, well, actually, just a couple, couple months ago, we'll say it a different way. A couple months ago, uh, we took our boys to see Toy Story 4. Okay, and that was one of the first. Actually, I think it was. That was the first movie that Jude and Jack and John was there too. Um, he actually made it through it as well. Actually, made it through. You know, at the movies, we take we took them to see Incredibles like last year, and man, it just did not go well. You know, we were out of that joint in a couple minutes, and you've never like received glares like the glares of people trying to enjoy a movie whenever you have two screaming toddlers. You know, it's just not pleasant. So we got out of there. But Toy Story Four was the first movie that we actually were able to see uh, all the way through in the movie theater, and as 
my mom came to visit a little bit later and she was like, oh, that's really cool because she was telling me the first movie that she ever took me to see whenever I was really little was Toy Story, the original Toy Story that I went to see. And so it was just kind of cool to, to hear that. But it made me think of all those really great movies in the mid-90s era. You know, you've got, you got Toy Story and The Lion King and, and Aladdin came out around then. It made, me, it made me think of Aladdin as I was studying this because you have the genie, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking about the new one. It's the Will Smith. Is Will Smith the genie in the, in the new one? Yeah, the Will Smith genie, and it might be great, but Robin Williams is genie, okay? Like, that's, that's the real genie. It made me think of it, and, you know, genie in, that, in, in the movie Aladdin, he's a slave, right? Like, he has all this power, but he's a slave. He's, he's in the lamp, and he, he has to do whatever, whoever rubs the lamp. They have authority and power over, you know, genie to tell him what to do, and that little line from Robin Williams is hilarious. I'm not even going to try to impersonate him, but, you know, where he says, I have phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space, you know, that, that line. Don't we treat God like this so often when it comes to our own lives and what we want? We try to put him in itty-bitty living space. We want him to have all this power to do whatever we want. Okay, newsflash, it's not, that's not how it works. He's not subject to your plans. You make the best plans. You may think that these plans are the absolute best for your life. The Lord's sovereign over all of those things that can happen in this fallen world. They don't take him by surprise. And he uses every single bit of it for your absolute good. God's plans for you are infinitely better than your plans for yourself, even if his plans for you include pain and suffering and sorrow. His plans are best. So as you make plans, you see what James is trying to do. He's trying to bring us to a position of humility under God. We make these plans knowing that, first of all, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, And secondly, that the Lord is sovereign over tomorrow. And he's sovereign over next year. We don't know what's going to happen, but he does. So just this simple reminder for us. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know. We, We believe in the security of infinite knowledge so much that we act and plan as if we have it. We don't. We don't have infinite knowledge So when we make plans with an attitude of prideful, God-neglecting confidence, we try to take God's place as the supreme authority of our lives. And that place is reserved for him and him alone. You notice in verse 16, look at verse 16, James goes back to characterizing this perspective of the flesh. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's evil to presume to take God's place. Okay. Um, So that's the first reminder that our lives are unpredictable. And then the second reminder that he offers us, our lives are short. They, They go hand in hand. He says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he says, what is your life? It's a great question to reflect on this week. It is. It's a great question to journal on if you journal or just to pray through, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Um, Our lives are short. So this reminder, we don't have that much longer to live. You know that? We don't. We don't, we don't have, first of all, we don't know 
how much longer we have to live. But even if we live to be the oldest person to ever live, you know, it's still short. It's still short. How many people have lived in the history of the world that are completely forgotten? Most of them, right? Most of them. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe in the theology behind the movie, uh, the blockbuster movie Coco. Um, but if you've seen the movie Coco, I'm on a Disney kick today. I don't know what it is. Um, but if you've seen the movie uh, Coco, you know, just the, the Day of the Dead stuff and the stories behind all of that, um, once a person is forgotten, you know, they, they disappear in, in that other world. They disappear once a person is forgotten. All that to just say, if you're familiar with the movie, maybe it'll give you a picture we're all going to be forgotten. Okay? So, if you're trying to just puff yourself up in, in your life now, you need to remember, you're a mist. What is your life? You don't have much longer to live, and one day you're going to be completely forgotten. We're going back to Ecclesiastes to get really depressed. Um, but I did look up something else that was really depressing. There were two more things that were really depressing. <laughs> um, the first was, uh, you know, I started thinking about that. How much longer do I have to live? And I was like, I'm sure there's like some kind of, you know, creepy app that someone's created to actually tell me how much longer I have to live. And I looked some stuff up. And there's actually something called the death clock, if you are not aware. Um, and if you really want to be depressed this afternoon, just look it up, the death clock. Um, it, it tells you how many seconds you have left to live. <laughs> Uh, just it, it's obviously an estimation. It's based on your your age, you know, and and gender, and like health, and just different things like that. And it just gives you an estimate, you know, or average based on all those stats. But it does. It kind of puts this clock up, and it counts down all the seconds. Man, it was <laughs> Kendall. <laughs> um, it was sobering to see it. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. Because we all actually do have a death clock. We're going to die, all right? And it's going to be far shorter. It's going to be far shorter than we think. Okay, our lives are short. Something else that, that kind of depressed me this week, but it made me think of it, was seeing um, what ministry is going to be like in uh, 30 or 40 years here um, through the Face app thing I saw from all you guys. Um, on social media, I got to see what you guys are going to look like in 30 or 40 years. Man, ministry here is going to be wonderful, you know. It's just going to be great. But, uh, you know, it, for some of us, it's like, oh, my goodness, am I actually going to look like that? And we're confronted with our mortality. We don't have that much longer to live. Other than being depressed <laughs> by, by that thought, when we remember that our lives are short... We begin to view every single day as a gift of God's grace. Every day is a gift. When you remember, you don't know if you even have tomorrow and that your life is short. Every day then is a gift. You start to leave that perspective of, well, you know, next year, I'm, gonna, ah, I'm not going to do it right now, but I'll do it next week. It's not going to be a big deal. I know I'll be here next week. No, actually, I don't know, and life is short. I'm going to do it now. I have, I have a conversation I need to have with someone. Well, you know, I'm just going to kind of put it off. No, I need to have it now because I don't know what next week holds. I've been really meaning to share the gospel with this person, but, you know, I just, I'm going to read up on some stuff and plan, and, you know, we'll do that in a couple months. Okay, yes, fine, you can do that, but just know you don't know if a couple months are there. You don't know if they'll be there or you'll be there, and your life is short. 
It helps us see every single day as a gift of God's grace. And it also helps us to make the most of every day, to maximize our time. So two questions. How are you spending your short time on earth? Don't think about the time you've spent. Some of you might be thinking about how much time you've wasted. Think about the time you have. Every second is a gift of God's grace. And every second we are closer to the end of our lives. So how are you spending your time? And follow up from that, what are you living for? What are you living for? What is your purpose? And how does that apply in your family, with your friends, at your job? What changes do you need to make? Some of you might need to make changes now because you are realizing that your life is short. You just don't have that much time left. So these two reminders. Our lives are unpredictable and our lives are short and it helps us. It reorients our perspective where we can have this perspective of the spirit, this perspective of faith that whereas the perspective of the flesh is my life is my own, the perspective of faith is my life is not my own. My life is not my own. That's where we get into the meat of this passage. In verse 15, James says, instead, you ought to say, he corrects us, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Then in verse 17, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And then we're gonna get into chapter five here in just a second. My life is not my own. Now, the exhortation here is related to speech. And I recognize that. Verse 15, instead of saying, this is what James is saying, instead of saying today or tomorrow we will go into such a town um, and spend a year there and trade and make profit, you should say this instead. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And, and you know, he's getting at, you know, you're not, you're not the master of your own life, so humble yourself under the reality that life is short. Humble yourself under the reality that life is unpredictable and submit yourself to the Lord. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But, you know, our legalistic tendencies are to turn that phrase into a superstition, you know? We'll take that phrase and we're like, okay, the next time I make a plan, what I need to say is instead of next week, I'm gonna have lunch uh, with, with my wife. I'm gonna say, if the Lord wills, next week I'm gonna have lunch with my wife. And then you turn into an OCD robot, you know, where it's like anything you talk about in the future, you have to preface with, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And if you say something, you forget to add, if the Lord wills at the beginning, oh no, now my plan's gonna be ruined. The Lord's not gonna honor that. Like, no, that's not humility. That's just annoying, okay? Um, James is not trying to create a superstition. Even though he is talking about speech, and we should include this in our speech when we talk about the future, one way to show an attitude of humility under the Lord is to say, if the Lord wills. I was in an email thread with Ian, you know, Thompson, and we were talking about, you know, he's going to be coming for a visit then, and I, and I used that phrase, you know, and it wasn't because I was trying to be superstitious, like if I don't say this, the plan might not work out. I was saying it because it's true. It's true. If the Lord wills, we will see him in September. Um, I've always thought it funny. Maybe I should say the, the opposite too. And if the Lord does not will, I will not see you in September. Like, you know, just cover all our bases, you know, and just be a really depressing, annoying person. Um, 
But no, the, James, the, what I want to get at this morning is the attitude that's behind that phrase. It makes me think of the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer given is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. Okay? That we are not our own. And belong. That's the attitude that James is after here. That we are not our own. If the Lord wills, we will do this because we are not our own. We belong to the Lord and it's whatever he wants. So how can we live like our lives are not our own and that we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ? All right, I have four suggestions here that come from this passage. First, we have to submit to Jesus as Lord. If the Lord wills reflects a heart attitude of submission to Jesus. We cannot have Jesus as our Savior and reject him as our Lord. That's what James is concerned with in this entire book. That is a practical atheism where we claim to believe in Jesus and yet we live as if he does not exist. No, Christians are called to submit every area, every aspect, every activity in their lives under the lordship of Jesus. We fully and truly submit to him. And submitting to Jesus means leveraging every single day, every moment that we are given for his glory. How can I glorify God through this ordinary plan that I'm making? And if you wrestle through it and you're like, I don't think I can bring him any glory by doing this, maybe you shouldn't do it. Take it off the calendar. That's what it looks like to submit to Jesus as Lord in your planning. How does this bring Jesus glory? Maybe ordinary. Maybe the most ordinary thing in the world. I'm going to have lunch next week with this person. How does it bring Jesus glory? I'm building this person up. I'm seeking to build them up. Or there's a hard conversation I need to have, but it will bring them closer to Jesus. Um, Submission to Jesus means asking, how can I steward today for the glory of God and the good of others? Because guess what? Today is all you have. Today is all you have. Tomorrow is unknown. Your life is short, but Jesus is Lord. If the Lord wills, you will do this tomorrow. But submit your life to Jesus today and leverage today. Leverage these moments. Leverage this afternoon for his glory. We don't have time to waste. So first, submit to Jesus as Lord. Secondly, how can we live like my life is not my own, but I belong to Jesus is we trust in the sovereignty of God. If the Lord wills, reflects a heart attitude of trust in God's sovereign power. We need to recognize, we always forget this, that God is sovereign over all of our plans, all of our days, all of our actions. He is the one who is in control. Trusting God's sovereignty with the future creates freedom from worry. Because these reminders that James gives us, I don't know about you, but when I read it, I was tempted toward worry. You know, plans provide us with security where, where, where we feel secure. I know what's going to happen tomorrow because it's on my calendar. When we're confronted with this realistic reminder that you do not know what tomorrow will bring and that you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, 
It causes us to worry about the future. I don't know. It's like walking, walking in a dark room and you're just feeling around. You know, you're a little scared. You don't know. You don't know what's in front of you. But when you recognize that that is the state of your life, that's reality. You don't know the future. Your life is short. And you trust in God. That's what if the Lord wills indicates. When you trust in the sovereignty of God, it frees you from worrying. You don't have to submit to the temptation to worry when you're submitting yourself under the sovereignty of God and trusting to him because you know you are held by the one who does know what's coming tomorrow. You know that you are being directed and guided and led by the one who knows the very moment that you will leave this earth. He knows how short your life is. He knows what's coming in the future. And he is the one who is planning all things for your good. Even when he overrides your plan. So trust. When you are tempted to worry about the unknown future, trust in the one who knows everything that's coming. And the one who is working all things, present and future, for your good in Christ. Trusting God's sovereignty creates power for maximizing every single day. I'm not worried about the future. I'm looking at today head on. And I'm going to live every moment for the sake of God's glory. And he's going to take care of the future. Okay, so trust in the sovereignty of God. The third thing, do the right thing. How can we live like our lives are not our own? Do the right thing. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 feels so out of place from this passage, okay? It, it feels like it's just randomly planted in this passage. Um, some of your, your, your translations may even have the word therefore. There's an obvious connection until you read what he says after therefore. He's like, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's like, what in the world does this have to do with what, he, what he's just been talking about? I believe we do see a connection here. He's talking about sins of omission. It's not that you're doing the wrong thing. It's that you're knowing a good thing to do. You're knowing the right thing to do and you fail to do it. What he's saying is when you live under a practical atheism, that will characterize your life. When my life is my own, your time is your own. Your days are your own. So when you see an opportunity to do good, if it comes in conflict with your plans, you will not do it. But when your life is fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus, you have a plan for what you're doing today and something comes up, an opportunity arises to do good. There is something that is right that can be done. You will change your plan in submission to the plan of God and do what is good. Um, but how often do we fail to do that? We fail so often to do good for others. And the only reason we've got is it messes with my plan for today. It messes with my plan for the next week. I can't do good here because I don't have time. The message this morning is your time doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Your days don't, the days don't belong to you. They belong to God. So when he presents you with an opportunity to do good or to do the right thing, you sin when you avoid it. 
So don't avoid it. Live your life in full submission to the lordship of Jesus. This perspective of faith sees these opportunities to do good and goes off course for the day and does them for the sake of God's glory. All right, and there's one more thing. There's one more thing that characterizes my life is not my own. I belong to the Lord, and it's found in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Um, we are called to steward God's gifts for his glory. So these, these, four, these four aspects of a life of if the Lord wills, a, a heart that is submitted to Jesus, a heart that is trusting in God, a heart that is doing the right thing when given the opportunity, and then finally a heart that stewards God's gifts for his glory. So let's, let's read this passage, and again, we're not going to comment on everything in it, but we're going to make a couple observations and, uh, and then move on. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, um, definitely a hard word. When we approach our resources as belonging to us, that they are our own, no matter how much we have, but when, when you approach it with this attitude of the flesh, and we're all prone to it, you will use God's gifts for your selfish purposes. We will hoard, we will commit fraud, we will indulge ourselves, and in the end, we will betray our brothers and sisters. Um, so this is what we need to remember. God is sovereign over everything we have. Everything. Every cent in our bank account, he is sovereign over all of it, and he has given us everything we have. Everything we have belongs to him. This is the perspective of faith. This is, this is a Christian perspective of our lives in the world. We are not our own. We belong to God, and every single thing that we have belongs to God. It's his so an attitude of the flesh that we are prone to is to use what has been given to us for ourselves. But an attitude of the spirit, a perspective of faith, uses God's gifts for his glory and the good of others. When we see that our lives do not belong to us and everything we have belongs to God, we are not our own. We will approach God's gifts. We will use God's gifts for his glory and for his good. We will be empowered to freely let go of our gain when we realize both our resources and our very selves belong to God. Now, what happens? What happens? Just hypothetically. What happens when we keep claiming to believe in Jesus and keep living like he doesn't exist. 
If that care, if in the end, if in the end, on the last day, that's your story. That's your story. He claimed to know me, but he did not live for me. She believed all of the right things, and it did not transform her life in the slightest. She lived, he lived as if life belonged to them. We will face God's judgment. He's, in chapter 5, he's addressing those who are rich. But it applies to all of us. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Why is he calling them to repentance? Why, why, is he, why is he saying they need to be in terror for the miseries that are coming upon them? Because, in verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And he will answer. If we continue to live as if our lives belong to us and the days are ours to do whatever we please, we will face God's judgment. Our only hope our only hope is not to figure it out and to turn our lives around and on our own come to this right perspective. Our only hope is that Jesus faced God's judgment for us. Jesus, the, the, the only one who actually has all authority and who actually is self-sufficient and who doesn't need anyone else, for a time willingly and totally submitted himself under the authority and will of the Father by taking on flesh. And in his life, he maintained this heavenly perspective that his life was not his own, and he demonstrated that ultimately by giving up his life for us. So this humble condescension, this humble submission of Jesus is both the means and the motive of our humble submission to God. The only way we can say our lives are not our own was for Jesus to say my life is not my own and he gave up his life freely for his flock, for us. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own but belong both body and soul to Jesus Christ. So if that's true of you this morning, for those of us who are in Christ, Let's leverage every single day that we have left for his glory. Because we don't know what next week will bring. We don't know what next year will bring. We have today as a gift from the Lord. So let's leverage it. Let's use it for the sake of building up his church. Don't waste conversations. Don't waste phone calls. Don't waste text messages. Use every moment you have left for the sake of the building up of God's people and for the sake of God's glory in this city. Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see our lives from a realistic perspective. It's not wrong for us to make plans, but sometimes we make plans to give ourselves a sense of security about the future 
And sometimes we make plans completely ignoring your role in our lives. We act as if we are Lord, but we're not. We act as if our lives are our own. But for those of us in Christ, our lives are not our own. We belong to you. So I pray that you would equip us and empower us to live like it, to submit to you, to trust you, to do good when opportunity arises, to steward everything we have and everything that we are every day that we have left for your sake. Father, we confess that we have wasted so much time. We have wasted many days. And we come and ask for forgiveness and ask for the power to live in such a way that others would see our submission to you. If the Lord wills, it's not a legalistic superstition that you have given us, but it is reflective of the right heart attitude we have to have in order to genuinely and truly and effectively follow Jesus in this world. So help us to do that well. Father, help us to leave this place and be doers of this word. Father, work in us whatever you need to work in us. Work out of us whatever you need to work out of us as we respond now and as we respond throughout the week. May we not live as if you do not exist. May practical atheism be far from us. May we be those who are living according to what you want for our lives recognizing that your plans sometimes contradict our plans. And when that happens, I pray that we would submit to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake.